This is Conquering Columbus. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Conquering Columbus. This is your co-host, Mike. And on today's episode, we're talking with Ernie Knight, Managing Director and CEO of Valley Growth Ventures. At the start of the show, we get the chance to ask Ernie about how he got into venture capital. And it turns out that the bust of the dot-com bubble in the early 2000s played a major role in that. First, B2C.com dropped like a rock. But everybody said, oh, well, that made sense. It was never meant for B2C, the internet. It was meant for B2B. Well, B2B dropped and Autodac decided to consolidate everything that was not in engineering. They wanted me to move to Minnesota. I didn't want to move to Minnesota. So I moved to a just post-IPO company named Interwoven, which was web content management. I ran their product marketing group for about nine months when all of IT dropped like a rock. And then this thing called 9-11 happened and uh, Interwoven did a mass riff and I came back to Ohio and found uh, the role I mentioned at Reservoir Venture Partners. Later, we talk about how Valley Growth Ventures operates and the groups that make up their founding team. We have our uh, strategic founding investor group, and it includes the Young Sub Business Innovator, Bright Energy Innovators, a group called Valley Partners, development organization that provides small business loans, Youngstown State University, and then Bonds Accords Mercy Health. They all provide some part-time resources to help with back office, due diligence expertise. It's not really in-kind because they get some equity upside in the fund for it, but they help do more with less and support me as the sole investment professional, so I'm not entirely on an island doing everything. We wrap up the show talking about some advice from Ernie for entrepreneurs and founders based on what he saw made businesses successful while working in venture capital. All of them had a CFO slash COO. All of those companies that had been a core part of the management team and it was the CFO who played a COO role. The CEOs were really more sales oriented. They were out with the VP of sales in the weeds doing deals and the face of the company. And they had a CFO slash CFO that was in the background managing everything else on their behalf. So there was that person and that was common amongst all three. As always, thanks so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the interview. Let's get on with the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is your co-host, Mike. It's me and Josh again today. Josh, what's going on? Too much, dude. Gearing up for some travel tonight. I never knew what a real red-eye flight was. I thought a red-eye was when you left at like 5 or 6 in the morning, and tonight my flight leaves at 10 and lands at like 3.30 in the morning. And I That's guess this is, this is the real red-eye. That's eye. the real deal, man. So you got the real deal. I could have done without ever using doing You could also, I mean, other direction, it's like you leave at, when you leave from California at this time of day, and then get here at like eight in the morning. So you literally have no time to sleep. That's yeah. that's the other way around. Just as bad. The other I'm not going to book that one. I, this is the only direct flight. We have very poor amount of direct flights to get mm-hmm. to the West Coast. So I got to mm-hmm. fly to LA. And then on the way back, my flight's not too bad, but I have a stop, obviously. So Yeah. Yeah. There's no Wish good way luck. to get there. You can get to Phoenix from Columbus. That's about the only place on the West Coast you can get to in one stop. Vegas too. But that being said, that's enough about flights. That's enough about what's going on in our lives. Let's talk about our guest today. So joining us on the show today is Ernie Knight. And Ernie is the Managing Director and CEO of Valley Growth Ventures. Valley Growth Ventures is a micro venture capital investment fund created to support high growth, early stage companies across the state of Ohio with a preference for those in the Mahoning Valley. Formed in collaboration between five area organizations, VGV serves to aid in the growth of companies in their region and to reallocate out-of-region companies to the Mahoning Valley. Ernie has extensive experience working with startup technology organizations, including over two decades as a venture capital investor focused on the seed and early stages of growth. In addition to investing, he has served in several C-level entrepreneurial management roles and over a dozen board of directors. Prior to Valley Growth Ventures, Ernie acted as a founding managing director of Nationwide Mutual Capital, 
where he invested across a national footprint and led three exits of over $100 million. We're really excited to have Ernie on today to talk about VGV, their mission, and what they have planned for 2022 and beyond. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Ernie. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Really excited to have you on the show as well. One of the first places we like to start, just get a little background on yourself, your story, kind of how we got to where we are. Starting as far back as, hey, have you always lived in Columbus? I have not. I grew up in Northeast Ohio, small city called Ravenna. It's right down the street from Kent State University. Went to undergrad at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. Spent uh, the first several years of my career in the steel industry in what was then called LTV Steel, uh, doing manufactured engineering and and, uh, frontline operations management. From there, um, went to Harvard Business School, uh, graduated in 1999, which was the height of the dot-com boom. Joined one of the very first B2B marketplace exchanges called eSteel. And that sort of uh, jump-started my career into early-stage startups and the general ecosystem. Did a couple other startups on the West Coast and transition enterprise software. The dot-com boom, you might have caught the memo, it busted. And um, I was fortunate enough to come back to Ohio and came to Columbus to join a first-time venture fund called Reservoir Venture Partners. I was their first associate, spent a uh, you know, a couple of years there. And that's when I joined Nationwide and uh, co-managed their corporate venture capital fund and have been doing early stage venture capital and entrepreneurial management here in the uh, Columbus and Ohio area ever since. So undergrad, you get out and you're, you're in the steel space. Were you focused on finance and accounting background or what, what was your area of expertise? Coming out of the steel industry? Coming out of undergrad. Out of undergrad. Oh yeah. So um, my undergraduate major is electrical engineering and applied physics. So um, had a minor in economics, engineering focused with a economics minor and uh, always had it in my back pocket that I wanted to get an MBA at some point, but I was a, a pure engineer and operations person kind of coming out. So you weren't very motivated in college. <laughs> uh, uh, depends on who you ask. My father might say I should have been more motivated, but, uh, you know, we- Physics uh, and engineering is, is not an easy course of action. No, we, uh, it, it, in, in cases, a good school- it was a good amount of work and uh, look back on it fondly. Did you know that you wanted to go to HBS uh, early in your career? Or did that just kind of happen serendipitously? I don't think it ever happens serendipitously to fall into you HBS. You do have to. But, like, yeah, it yeah, takes a lot of work in like, gotta an application. You got to apply for that one, yeah. right? That's not an <laughs> online one. Oh, well, I have a, a story I could really entertain and bore you with uh, that uh, kind of drives that answer to that question, but I'll, I'll, I'll save that. Long story short, I decided in high school that I wanted to get an MBA. And as I mentioned, I grew up in Ravenna, Ohio. For context, I had never been on a plane until I was 21 years old. So just to give a sense, my thought was, okay, I want to get an MBA. Well, where should I get it? And the only school I really knew of was Harvard Business School that had a type of rotation. Obviously, there are others. So at that point, I started to research MBA programs and ways to eventually get accepted. As you can imagine, uh, not a lot of people from Reno, Ohio have gone to Harvard Business School. So I literally developed a roadmap, a framework on what I thought would help me get into Harvard, hopefully, and if not Harvard, then a top five or 10 school. And so you go to HPS, you finish up, and you find yourself jumping into the startup scene. Is that where the passions for startups? Because obviously, Steel, like you're, you're far away from that. You're probably in a major corporation, a fairly large company that's been around for a long time, and now it's a total change of pace when you're starting this almost the second evolution of your career. 
It's a great question. Basically, I come from the steel industry and hardcore operations, engineering background. But with the engineering background, I have said interest of technology. I hadn't really thought of startups. However, think about the timing. I went to business school in 97. It was the height of the dot-com boom. And just for context, this was a time when Yahoo, which was like a three-year-old portal, had three times the market capitalization of Disney. Think about that. It literally was a time when, you know, there were companies, I joined one, getting multiple hundreds of millions of valuation with no revenue, right? I mean, it was just a unbelievable free-for-all. And you go to Harvard Business School and your eyes get opened up to these possibilities. And I'm not kidding when I say we all thought that we were going to get rich. The question was how quickly and how rich. So it was just unbelievably attractive to go be entrepreneurial, be involved in startup businesses that were going to grow astronomically and their valuations would grow almost by like magic. Mm -hmm. So um, it was hard not to be attracted. Do you see any similarities in the market today to what we saw in the dot-com boom and bust? And in particular, right, we're talking about the technology companies that are disrupting a lot of established industries. For instance, I can think of a particular company in an electric car business that has received enormous valuations that the profits don't back up quite yet. So do you see any similarities in the market today to what you saw back then? I do, but not nearly to the degree. I mean, you know, now at least there is sort of a, for lack of a better term, there's a range. There are a set of companies that fit that mold then there are companies that still are kind of struggling. It's hard to find capital, all that, all that type of stuff. In the late 90s, if you had a Ivy League degree and a PowerPoint that made a lick of sense for a dot-com, you could raise $5 million on a $50 million pre-money valuation with not much more than that. And it would compound from there. So the scale and the breadth of the bubble was much larger. So similarities, yes, but it's a it's right. a minis- minuscule compared to the scale. Yeah, the scale is is much different. Josh, we graduated at the wrong time. So did I. I should have graduated <laughs> right. ninety five. Yeah, exactly. Then, then all, I would have been one of those up. that got really, really rich, right? Exactly. They didn't quite make the timing right. Uh, yeah. So going from there, right? You get this experience with I think you said it was East Steel. Yes. East Steel like stealing things from people like <laughs> Like, is that, or is it East Steel, like uh, Steel, the, like where you came from, like yeah, Steel? Like where I came from. So yeah. basically <laughs> it was a, a B2B marketplace for uh, the steel industry. So companies would go on, they would post primarily coils, and then steel buyers would buy said coils for, you know, whatever they might, you know, need to make cars, garbage cans, you name it. Right. Makes more sense to me than, than East Steel that I was thinking of. I'm like, what are we getting like a steal on a deal or something? Like what's... This is like a side question. I'm just curious. I'm trying to think through my brain. What is a prominent B2B marketplace now? I mean, like there aren't many comparisons to an Amazon, right? Or maybe I just well, don't use a, them and I don't know so about them. So in the trucking industry, there's a marketplace. There's a lot of logistics, like marketplaces like that, where you can post like, I have this load and I want to take it from here to here. And there's like all the trucks that are available and they can bid on the well, trip and like yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, there's like marketplaces like that, but from a supply standpoint, like does that e-steel still exist today? No. All of the four running BD marketplaces, as far as I know, died out. The technology really wasn't ready. I mean, I can literally remember, I mean, my role was to go out and generate accounts, right? Get steel 
corporate steel companies on the site, using the site and transacting. I can remember giving presentations to C-level steel executives and dancing around the fact that the site is clearly down and making motions, right, to my colleagues to go and see when it's going to come up. And nowadays, that does that happen? Sure. But back then, I mean, that was guaranteed to happen at least once a presentation, if not the entire presentation. So that's a kind of a micro example, but the technology really wasn't ready, right? It, it didn't scale. And we had the challenge of the continual factor of 10, which really amounted to you go and get 10, say, companies excited. They go on the site. There's nothing there for them. So you get the next 10. They're excited, but guess what? The first 10 are no longer there. They're gone. So you never get beyond 10. Right. And that was a kind of a common issue between the technology and creating a dual-sided marketplace. The most marketplaces today that we run across when we look at investing in still have that same sort of- Chicken and the egg problem. Chicken and egg problem. But then we were all trying to figure out how to solve it. And the way you solved it was to raise more money at a higher valuation. But then that bubble happened. Most of those companies tried, and Steel is an example of this, to transition to software that created marketplaces. But at the end of the day, I can't think of any that are primarily other industry brethren that survived. It kind of just evolved into the company itself, creating its own website, and then you you make your own marketplace on the forefront, and then right. driving business that way. So when you were when the when the bubble burst. How far into your career? I mean, we mentioned East Steel, and you mentioned pretty quickly over top, there was a couple jumps in between. What were those jumps and where were you at when everything started to plummet? It's an interesting sort of story. I mentioned I was at East Steel mm-hmm. and I helped to co-found, uh, you know, their first sales office. They were based in New York. Me and another person were employees 12 and 13. We co-founded the first external sales office in Chicago. I was there for a year and- you guys didn't live this, but at the time it was quite common that you would vest your one-year cliff and then look for a better deal, right? Uh, So I vested my one-year cliff and I got recruited out to Silicon Valley for another B2B exchange called Autodac, you know, a play on words with NASDAQ. It was a exchange for primarily off-lease used cars. Went out there, did that for a year and a half. And the bubble at the time burst kind of in phases. First, B2C.coms dropped like a rock. But everybody said, oh, well, that made sense. It was never meant for B2C, the internet. It was meant for B2B. Well, then B2B dropped. Well, B2B dropped and Autodac, which had raised well over $40 million, decided to consolidate everything that was not in engineering in Minnesota, which was a a company that we had acquired that did services. Anyway, they wanted me to move to Minnesota. I didn't want to move to Minnesota. Enterprise software was still going strong. So I moved to a just post-IPO company named Interwoven, which was enterprise software for what's called web content management. It's a little bit different than probably what you think of it as, as web content management today. But anyway, I ran their product marketing group for about nine months when all of IT dropped like a rock. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this thing called 9-11 happened. Yeah. And uh, Interwoven did a mass riff and I came back to Ohio and found uh, the role I mentioned at Reserve Venture Partners. So what attracted you to venture capital after that experience? It's interesting. It kind of predates it a little bit. So my first exposure to venture capital, other than what you saw on TV and read newspapers at the time, was I took a venture capital and private equity class in business school. And I had 
uh, colleagues who were, you know, analysts at VC funds. So my view of it at the time was I wanted to get into VC at some point. And my thought was VC, and this maintained through those experiences, even though they were challenging, you get to look at new technologies all the time. And as an engineer, that's appealing to me, getting to see the new technologies, the latest and greatest, but also being able to apply, you know, actual operational management skills to help companies grow. But not just one company. As an early stage VC, you're in the weeds with a portfolio of companies. So that was always attractive, the chance to kind of spread my ability to, to impact operationally on kind of new technologies. And uh, though the dot-com piece was rough, to me, even at the time, they were just um, kind of school of hard knocks learning experiences, which helped me to you know be what I, I hope is a relatively decent VC. And you should think about VC, especially in your early career. Did it come rather natural to you to be able to evaluate these businesses and these industries the businesses were in and understand future potential success? Or does it fall back more to a numbers game and, and betting on the individuals? Great question. I don't, I would imagine that there wouldn't be a VC that tells you it comes naturally. There's just not just the technology, but there's evaluation of every part of the business, the market, the financials, the team, the deal structure. And until you start to see four, seven, 10 and more deals kind of go through the whole cycle, and until then you don't develop what we call in the industry pattern recognition. And you really need that ability to have pattern recognition. Not that that guarantees anything, but kind of going in to think, okay, well, you know, I've met Mike and Mike's clearly a rock star. He's taking this company to the moon. Maybe that's true, maybe it's not. But until you've seen not just the, the folks that have gone to the moon, the folks that have done middling and the folks that have failed, it's just difficult to ascertain that. And that goes the same thing when you're looking at the financial statements, the market, all of that. It takes some time to learn the business. And folks in the industry will tell you it's an apprenticeship business, and it really is. Most of my career so far has been in startup software companies. And it's not until this most recent one where it's a product that's international and we're trying to launch it in North America. And I think it's a revelation that other people have probably had a long time ago and it's taken me a long time for some reason to figure this out. But the ability to properly know the problem you're solving and then segment that market in the right way almost seems like one of the, it's got to be one of the major reasons that most of these companies miss the mark. Is like you think you're solving a problem for a group of people that you're not and you think the market's larger than what it is. And it's so easy to say that in theory, but to actually figure it out and to evaluate that. And as I think about sitting on the other end and being a venture capitalist and trying to figure that out, especially in a fast manner, because you don't have forever to evaluate these deals, is there certain shortcuts or, or paths that you guys have taken to get quicker to that pattern recognition? Or do you stay really focused in one industry and not spread yourself too thin? Like what, what are some of the tools of the trade? Well, first, we don't focus on one industry, um, mainly because our fund is geographically restricted to Ohio. And there's just not enough venturable deal flow to stick to one industry. So what's that mean? We have to be good, solid generalists. And kind of the, I don't know if it's a trick to the trade, but it's a framework. I always try to determine pretty quickly in deals that we do some diligence on, most deals you pretty quickly decide that it's not a fit for whatever reason. Is there a real pain point being solved? And is that pain point a nice to solve, a nice to have, or is it a must have? And you really want to try to live in the world of must-haves. A lot of times entrepreneurs in startup companies, especially kind of at that very early stage, and they're trying to define their customer, the customer that they've defined is themselves, right? And 
you'll often find that they're not necessarily representative of the broader market. So developing questions that when you talk to other subject matter experts in the marketplace or potential customers or prospects and trying to see whether or not they're solving a real pain point and does does it solve it for a broader aspect rather than you know one specific little niche. Our sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. So on the website, VGV is described as a micro fund. Can you talk to us a little more about what that means and what a micro fund is compared to, say, other funds out there? And I mean, are there are there also macro funds? And then how are those different? Sure, sure. It's a great question. I mean, micro fund is a term that's really been coined, I'd say, over the last five years, maybe. In its most purest sense, it means small, right? Mm-hmm. So larger funds don't call themselves macro. They're just, right. they're funds. They're just funds. But, you know, what is the the reason for the delineation? Most funds that are sub $10 million in uh, committed capital, they're either nonprofit funds, right, which by definition are more philanthropic in their goals. And they're often what we evergreen, which means as they have exits, they just pour it back into the fund and recycle it. Other funds, particularly in the Midwest and particularly in Ohio of that state, state that are for-profit are angel funds. Angel funds are almost always in the Midwest and everyone I know of in Ohio are member managed. What does that mean? That means every member gets a vote. So all of their processes have to be centered around member meetings so that they can have votes. Nothing wrong with that, but that drives how they have to manage their processes, their due diligence, all of it. Micro VCs, are groups that are small, right? And have a sub $10 fund, but operate, walk, talk, are structured, compensate their investors, the whole nine yards, just like larger VCs. There is no difference in us and a billion dollar fund. Obviously a billion dollar fund has a lot more people and resources and they get to pay themselves more than I do. Um, But from a operational perspective, a thematic perspective and a way we view the world, it's the same. And that's really the primary of addition. Just comes down to scale. It comes to scale. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And so as we kind of continue to talk about this, right, I think I can guess the answer to this one, but you know, the focus on the Mahoning Valley, right? What, where does that come from? What, and how did this fund even come together? Didn't touch upon this in my in my background, but I also uh, currently manage a small niche consulting firm called E Knight and Associates, uh, very uncreatively named. Um, anyway, yeah, don't uh, don't hire us to do your marketing. So anyway, that aside, one of my clients several years ago was uh, an incubator in Warren, Ohio, uh, that had a different name then, but now it's called Bright Energy Innovators. They were looking to start a small. F- really economic development fund that would attract companies to Bright. At the same time, the Young Sun Inc. business incubator was looking to do the same thing. The two groups decided that rather than to compete, because they're very close to each other, one's in Young Sun, one's in Warren, to join forces. And they asked me to do a really study of the region on what type of a fund would work to help startups in the region. 
So, you know, long story short, did said uh, strategic analysis, gave a framework for what would be, you know, what we thought would be the best recommendation to work. They liked what we put together and asked us to help raise and manage the fund. And that's kind of how it came together. You know, so why Mahoney Valley? A uh, few reasons. One, uh, it's underserved. I mean, a lot of the dollars and focus attention in Northeast Ohio is Cleveland-centric. You know, from their perspective, they wanted to have some capital that was looking at, you know, their region. There's also some, some really interesting assets there. Uh, mentioned the Youngstown Business Incubator and Bright Energy Innovators. There's also a good amount of research being done at the Youngstown State University. There's a large footprint for Bonsecor's Mercy Hills Health System. And a lot of people off the side of the region don't realize this, but America Makes, which is the Department of Defense's National Manufacturing Institute for 3D Printing, is based in downtown Youngstown. So there's, there's a lot of interesting resources there. I don't know if you can reflect back on and when you're doing that strategic analysis, but do you know, I'd, I'd be interested in your thought process behind why taking a venture capital approach versus whatever the economic development approach that those two entities were looking at was uh, more advantageous and just to kind of pick your brain and hear your thought process behind that. It's a great question. And it's going to surprise you on how simple the answer actually is. Part of the analysis included talking to people in the region around, hey, what would it take for you to be attracted to invest? And I forget the specific number, but it was over 90% said it's got to be financially return focused. There really wasn't enough interest. I don't think if we had done economic development fund purely, we could have attracted more than a couple hundred thousand dollars of, of investment. So to make a fund viable, it had to be financial return focused. Um, and if it's going to be financially return focused, now your question is kind of angel or institutional and we really needed the institutional groups to help to make it scale. Ergo, micro VC fund. As opposed to a fund that might be more focused on businesses that are needed for the area. So like, I mean, I think I, I don't know how to say what I'm thinking, but I, I see what you're saying, but I like to peel back the layers. So mm -hmm. it's like, if I'm not just financially focused, you think, why would anybody invest? But if you're investing in an area, maybe you're not focused on necessarily 10x returns, but something a little bit more reasonable is that the alternative there? Like if you're, if you're not focused on investing for financial returns, maybe this is a better way of asking my question. What else would you be focused on? Well, so you could focus purely on job creation, right? And say, we're going to put together a $5 million fund and it's going to invest in 20 startup businesses. And we hope that, you know, one or two become viable and create a thousand jobs or whatever it is in the region. And you're really taking an economic development and job creation viewpoint. The theory is if you put enough seeds in the ground, right, something will be okay. And it doesn't have to be a hundred X because we just want to have something work. And there's a lot of economic development focused organizations really throughout the country that take a version of, of that approach. Is that typically, I know this isn't your area of expertise, so we don't have to like dive super deep into it, but I would assume that's more of like a philanthropic angle that people would be putting money in towards. Yes, exactly. And it's a different type of investor base, right? So for example, where I might be going to, when I was raising Valley Growth Ventures, to the CEO or CFO of an organization or to a, a pension fund, right? When you're going to the philanthropic, you're going to the foundations 
It's really no different than the groups that you would go to if you just wanted a donation to something, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and the pitch is, okay, well, this is a, is a donation, but you might also get returns. And so it, like almost anything that you get is gravy, right? If, if As long as it's better than they would have gotten from the tax deduction of the philanthropic gift, anything beyond that is, is gravy. So um, it, it's a different focus mm -hmm. of who you attract to invest. And so with this micro fund, are you the key employer or sole employer? Or do you have a team around you? So um, I am the sole investment professional uh, on staff. We have a, a cycle of interns that come through and help. Um, we also have uh, what we call our uh, strategic founding investor group. And it includes the Young Sub Business Incubator, who I mentioned, Bright Energy Innovators, a group uh, called Valley Partners, who they provide, they're like a development organization that provides small business loans, Youngstown State University, and then Bonds Accords Mercy Health. They all provide some part-time resources to help with back office, due diligence expertise. It's not really in kind because they get some equity upside in the fund for it, but they help do more with less and support me um, as the sole investment professional. So I'm not entirely on an island doing everything. And how many investments have you guys made so far? Are you allowed to disclose that? We are. It's, we've made four investments so far. Uh, we've had one exit, which was a positive return. So happy to say that. And we are literally about to close our fifth deal within the next week or two. Knock on wood. Big knock on wood. Congrats. Hopefully by the time this goes live. Very possible. Very, Very possible. possible. By the time this goes live. Actually, so, I would expect that it would. So uh, as you've kind of gone about that, what have been the biggest challenges throughout this process? for you and for the, for the fund? Well, um, I mean, not to, not to say what you probably hear often, but I mean, COVID was a big challenge. Uh, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Adds up. Yeah. And, and some people took a different approach to, to COVID than others. We went ultra conservative. I didn't want to be investing into headwinds of a global pandemic. So, um, you know, we really were looked at, looking at deals very, very, skeptically until about this time last year when we opened it up again. So that's been a challenge, but, you know, probably more direct to the questions that you're asking. There's a lot of good aspects about being a, a micro fund. One of the challenges is scale and resources as we talked about. So what does that mean? Well, we write $250,000 investment initial checks into our companies. That's our target plus or minus $250,000 doesn't get a company real far. So we have to partner with other groups of similar size to try to put together million-dollar rounds. Even at a million dollars, it doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room for mistakes, right? Our companies need to really be on point. And then we have to, you know, try to raise other smaller rounds. So what does that mean? It means our companies aren't as well-funded and aren't as well-resourced as, as you call the macro funds would be. So that's a challenge from a, just a scale perspective. And really we have to, a lot of bigger funds will write $10 million checks. You can make a lot of mistakes in a $10 million round. Mm -hmm. When you've got a one to one and a half million dollar round, you've got to really, really, really watch the bottom line yeah. constantly. And that's a challenge. Aren't there also advantages to that though for your companies where, right? Like, so for instance, right? If you're super well-funded, right? Well, you know, you start being frivolous at times and you maybe start burning more money than you should be. So- that kind of, hey, we've having that limit, doesn't that also help in some ways? 
I like the thing it does. I mean, I'm in the, in the micro space for a reason. And, you know, I'm personally as an investor, much more comfortable working with entrepreneurs that for lack of a better term, kind of have their feet to the fire mm-hmm. and they have to make very strong operational decisions all the time. They don't have the wiggle room. It puts the, the pressure on, so to speak, but I think it makes for better overall management. I think it keeps things more on point and, you know, there's pros and cons to everything, but I agree. There's a lot of pros to it. And as you look back over your venture capital career, what have been some of the most successful companies you've been fortunate to uh, invest in or invest alongside of or help with the investment of? And why do you think they were so successful? Well, the first part of that answer is the easiest part. I like to say that investing is like sales, right? It's real easy to tell how you're doing. Now, the difference between sales and venture capital investing, in sales, it's every quarter, right? Um, you know, Mike, you're a sales guy. You, you, you understand it as well as anybody. In venture capital, you're looking back five to seven years to see how you're doing, right? So it gives you a lot of time to, to hide your warts. But anyway, to, to your question, if you're judging based on returns, it's, it's your exits, right? And I was invested in a company called DWL that was sold to IBM for, and I can't disclose the numbers even several years later, but, you know, well over, you know, three digit in the millions. Also a company called Exedium, another enterprise software company, and a company called Lombardi Software. Those three were all 100 million plus exits and really are the highlights. What in those companies was the difference? And as simplistic as this is going to sound, looking back, it's, it's management. All of those companies had rock star CEOs, strong management teams. In the case of DWL, that was their third go round together of being successful. And actually the DWL, that was their least successful of the three. In the case of, of Lombardi Software, it was their second time. And they've since gone on as a group to do two more. And Exedium was a, an entrepreneur that was a, kind of her last company. But she had multiple successes prior to. So they all really had been there, done that CEOs and management teams that had, most of them had worked together, right? For, for all of those initiatives. And that would, I guess, would be the common theme. So that working together in those key roles, right? You get the CEO, I'm guessing, right? Probably a sales leader, probably a product leader. What other roles are there that, that fit into those key groups? All of them had a CFO slash COO. Mm-hmm. You could argue when is the right time for that CFO. Mm-hmm. All of those companies that had been a core part of the management team, and it was the CFO who played a COO role. All of them, the CEOs were really more sales oriented. They were out with the VP of sales in the weeds doing deals and the face of the company. And they had a CFO slash CFO that was in the background managing everything else on their behalf. So there was that person and that was common amongst all three. Interesting. And as we look at VGV right now, what is the time horizon for deployment of the capital? Do you feel a pressure and urgency uh, given the fact that COVID has kind of slowed things down over the last two years? The short answer is I do. And, you know, our investment pace you know, we're at, as I mentioned, this will be our fifth deal. Our target was to do nine deals. I would have liked to have been close to seven or eight and getting close to the end, and, and we're not. The way our fund is structured, we really only have this year to make new deals. Now, that said, the nice thing about, um, you know, partnership structures, I can go to the investors and with a super majority, I can get it extended, right? But I have to go through that process. So I do feel a sense of urgency, particularly this year, to quicken the investment pace and do more deals. That said, 
I have a fiduciary obligation to my investors to make good investments. And that you're behind your investment pace is not a good reason for making an investment. And if we don't do another deal this year because we can't find the right deals and they do not extend the new investment period, then we just won't use all of the capital that we had hoped to. Um, and I'd, I'd rather do that than try to force bad mm. deals in the portfolio. That's, that's the KOD, the kiss of death. How many deals, this would be one of my last questions, how many deals do you typically look at before, I mean, you've invested in five, so maybe the better question, how many deals have you looked at in total to invest in those five? We have our annual meeting coming up. So we run those stats every year and we frame it as inquiries, right? Companies that at least have come through the door and all of them, we make an assessment whether we spend time on it or not. It might be a 30 second, doesn't fit assessment, but it's an assessment and it's over 550. So it's a lot. I mean, the numbers are small then, you know, you got to get a lot, especially in a valley like that, where maybe you don't have quite as much uh, venture capital activity going on. I mean, you got to get a lot of inquiries in the door to find good fits. Well, we do. And, and I should qualify that uh, Mahoney Valley is, um, you know, sort of our focus and our preference, but we can invest anywhere in Ohio. So we think of the world um, like this geographically. Our first preference is the Mahoney Valley region. Second geographic preference level is Northeast Ohio. And then third is Ohio broadly. And every deal has to be approved by our investment committee. And the investment committee takes a purely financial view. They don't think about region whatsoever. They think about financials. I'm one member of, of the five of that committee. But our view of the world is top priority, financial returns. Second priority, financial returns. Third priority, financial returns. And our fourth priority is to support entrepreneurship, deal flow, wealth creation, and job creation in the Mahoney Valley region. So we're, we're, you know, we love the Mahoney Valley. We're focused there. We want to do deals there, but we have as our fiduciary obligation as a for-profit fund, look for the profit first. And I've got one last question on VGV before we kind of move towards our last question of the show. Do you ever see the team expanding, right? You have some interns, it's you, right? Do you ever see the team growing building that up further and even maybe trying to raise more funds to continue to grow? Our goal long-term is to have a VGV2 and then a VGV3, and hopefully there will be increases in capital in each one. And with that, uh, we would absolutely increase the team. And first, I would like to have a, a partner, right? Another managing director, and then hopefully, you know, analysts and associates, but absolutely. But we, we really need to hit sort of a, another fund with a, at least $10 million of capital to really make it just viable from an expense structure perspective. Makes a lot of sense. From there, I think we can kind of head towards some of our last questions of the show. And so the first one, right, is do you have any advice for our listeners? So when you're an entrepreneur or you're running a small business, I've noticed a tendency to want to be everything for the business, right? The CEO is not just the CEO. He's the VP of sales. He's the VP of marketing. Uh, it's, it's what I call the VP of everything phenomenon. That can work and you can have success, absolutely. And it works well for a lot, of, a lot of people. However, it doesn't scale and it limits upside. If you want to grow, you need to really develop the ability to, to hire well, to build a team, to manage a team. You, you can do great kind of running your own show to a point, but if growth is your goal, you really have to develop those management skills. No, it makes complete sense. And, and you know what, uh, it's that whole concept of, right? Like it's just one person, you can only do so much, but if you can build people that can do the same thing you're doing, maybe even a little better than what you're doing, 
right? That scalability comes in pretty quickly. But our last question of the show, Ernie, is centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, and, and that is live uncomfortably. And without telling you too much about why we chose that particular phrase for the theme here, what do you think of when you hear it? How does it apply to your life and career? So um, to me, when I hear it, it kind of resonates as a almost a lifestyle, right? Always pushing, constantly challenging yourself to do better, trying new things, trying to innovate, not just in business, but in all aspects of your life and all the time, kind of a nonstop living, breathing state of continual personal improvement, right? Mm -hmm. But in a way that looks to not just improve your life, but to improve the lives of your family and others and and, and make things better. I love it. That's a great description of it. And uh, Ernie, thanks so much for joining us on the show. It's been great talking with you. Thanks so much. Enjoyed it. Conquerors, thanks so much for tuning in. You enjoyed that interview. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you are listening on. You will get interviews just like this every week on Mondays. Again, we really appreciate all your support. We'll talk to you next week.